to our title, Disciples Make Disciples, uh, part one, Matthew 18, 16 to 20. And this will be part of a, a longish sort of series. Um, it is said that familiarity breeds contempt. You heard that expression? I think that is certainly a truism. But it's also that familiarity breeds complacency, which is probably also a truism for this most well-known, well-memorized, well-preached passage, namely Matthew 28, 16 to 20. If you've been a Christian for some time, uh, you, you probably know this passage. You, you can probably recite most of this passage that we are to go into all the world and make disciples, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit and teaching them to obey all things I have commanded you and lo, I am with you until the very end of the age. As you'll see from the screen, sometimes it's been called the great commission, sometimes it's been called the great command, sometimes the great mission, the great goal, the great vision. Uh, Michael Horton in his book, a wonderful book, he called it the gospel commission. For some churches it might be the great omission, because there are churches that simply do not take the gospel to the ends of the earth. Now, over the last 10 to 12 weeks, what we've been trying to do through the book of Ephesians is trying to align ourselves around our identity in Christ. And the thing that I hope that you've grasped, if we could sum it up in one word, it would be the word body. Body. The church is a body. And I hope that we've all enjoyed drinking from this identity that we are in the body of Christ. We've been chosen in grace, predestined in love, forgiven and redeemed by blood. We've been indwelt by the Spirit. We are alive and united to Christ by faith. And we have been fashioned and formed into a body of believers where we are brothers and sisters. But being in Christ doesn't stop with identity. Identity, we might say, is the inward grace. But mission is the outflow of grace. Our identity is the inflow of grace. It is our mission which is the outflow of grace. Of that grace. And I want to just give you a wonderful definition from a, from a book called The Vine Project. And it sort of just pulls it all together just so wonderfully, where it says, We are united in the body of Christ around the mission of Christ. There it is. That's it. We are united in the body of Christ around the mission of Christ. And if you've got your Bible open in Matthew chapter 28, and you're there with the disciples and Jesus on the mountain, that's exactly what we've got. That's a little picture that's about to be blown out throughout the book of Acts. But that's what we've got. We've, we've, we've got, got a united body of Christ, the disciples, and they're with Jesus on the mountain. And what does he do? He gives them a mission. He gives them a commission. He gives them a vision. He gives them a goal. He says to them, go 
and make disciples. He says to his disciples, disciples go and make disciples. We are united in the body of Christ around the mission of Christ. And the mission of Christ for us is that disciples make disciples. And it is this. This is what we want to pull out over the next few weeks. And, and it will go into the, second, uh, into the final term as well. And we're also going to look at this in our connect groups um, as we go through. Now, let me ask you a question. Is it your conviction that disciples make disciples? Just put up your hand. If that's a conviction for you, put up your hand. Is that, is that, is that a conviction for you? Did you absolutely, fundamentally believe that disciples make disciples? I'm sure, even if you didn't put up your hand, I'm pretty sure that that is a conviction that you have. Why? Because that's what it says, right? That's what the Bible says. That's what our Jesus tells us to go and do. But conviction without practice is like having a motor car that you never drive. Conviction without practice is like the person who knows they should go on a diet but never does. Conviction without practice is like knowing that you need to exercise but you never do. James says conviction without practice is like faith without good deeds. It's absolutely useless and dead. Conviction without practice is like dark rain clouds with no rain. It's like fruit trees but no fruit. And one of the questions I really want to ask you to think about this morning, and maybe we could even think about it over tea and at least over your Sunday lunch today, what gospel convictions do you hold but you don't actually practice? What biblical convictions do you hold but you very rarely do? I was listening to a pastor uh, recently, and he made a very honest confession. In fact, a number of us heard this uh, confession, uh, confession at the Divine Project workshop last Sunday. He said this. He said, I am convicted and convinced from Scripture that my neighbors are going to hell without Christ, but I've never even bothered to introduce myself to them, nor do I even know their names. There's a conviction without practice. You can be very convicted and convinced that prayer and Bible reading are fundamental to your growth as a Christian, but you very rarely read or pray. You could hold a conviction that it's important to be part of God's people outside of a Sunday morning like this, but you never gather with God's people. A church can hold a conviction that their children that we've just sent out need to hear the gospel and be saved by the gospel of Christ, but a church very, but then a church is in a position where they are always struggling to find kids' church teachers. You can have a conviction that a church like BBC needs to have strong leadership, but you never step forward to serve and to lead. You could have a conviction that you need to spend time with your kids, but you're always at work and you're lounging on the couch. You can have a conviction to love your wife as Christ loved the church, but it never translates into anything. As James says, don't be mere hearers of the word, but, but doers. What's the point of having biblical convictions but never acting upon them? 
Again, the question, what are your, what are my, what are our biblical convictions as a church? But we're not acting on them. We're just hearing, but we ain't doing. Now, as we come to this disciples make disciples conviction, which Jesus on the mountain tells his disciples to do. He says, go and make disciples. I I want this morning, I want to focus on very one significant, crucial aspect of this great commission, which is often neglected and it's often missed. And I want you to have a look at verse 18 with me. And, And I've sort of just, tweaked it a little bit from the Greek, from the original language, because this is how I want you to, here's how I want you to hear it, and here's how it's going to come at you. Here is verse 18. They're on the mountain. They're huddled. There's 11 of them, but there are many others there as well. And, and, and they saw him, and they, some doubted, and they worshipped him. And, and he says, here's, here's verse 18. Therefore, Therefore, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Therefore, go and make disciples. And I guess I really want you to get the two therefores this morning. I really want to bring this to you, that you see the therefore all authority, and therefore go and make disciples. So let me break it down into two headings for you. Therefore, all authority. Therefore, all authority. Who is this Jesus on the mountain? Who is this Jesus there on the mountaintop? Who is this Jesus that has got the audacity to say, go into all the world and make disciples? There is a phrase that Jesus uses to describe himself throughout the Gospels. It's a phrase that is used more than any other time in the Gospel of Matthew. When Jesus describes himself, does anybody know what that little phrase is? Somebody shout it out? How does he describe himself in the Gospels in the most frequent way? The Son of Man. It is used, thanks Emily, it is used 29 times in the book of Matthew. The term the Son of Man was the term that Jesus used that ultimately enraged the Pharisees and the teachers of the law to send him to the cross. Let me show you what I mean. Have a look at Matthew 26, 64, if you just flick back. The high priest says to Jesus, I charge you under oath by the living God. Tell us if you are the Messiah, the Son of God. Verse 64, you have said so, Jesus replied. But I say to all of you, from now on you will see the Son of Man sitting at the right hand of the Mighty One and coming on the clouds of heaven. Then the high priest tore his clothes and said, he's spoken blasphemy. Why do we need any more witnesses? Now look, you have heard the blasphemy. Now here's the question you've got to ask. What was it about this statement that blew the blood vessels of the religious aristocrats? 
We've got to go back to Daniel chapter 7, which was read for us earlier in the service. Let me just remind you. Daniel 7. Old Testament, in my vision at night, I looked, and there before me was one like a son of man coming on the clouds of heaven. Every single Jew knew this passage. Every single Jew was waiting for this son of man. He approached the ancient of days and was led into his presence. He was given authority, glory, and sovereign power. All the nations and peoples of every language worshipped him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion that will not pass away. And his kingdom is one that will never be destroyed. Do you see why this enraged the religious bourgeoisie? This unimpressive, unattractive, Sabbath-breaking, tradition-breaking carpenter's son who dined with sinners and tax collectors and, and, and prostitutes was claiming to be the son of man of Daniel 7 and saying that all people will worship him. Do you see it? In other words, what was he saying to those religious leaders? You will worship me. One day I will come and you will bow down at my feet and you will give me homage and honor and glory and you will declare that I am Lord of Lords. Blasphemy! And the religious high priest lost his clothes. Who is this Jesus on the mountain? Who is this Jesus? He is the one to whom all authority has been given by the Father. He is the one whose kingdom will never end. He is the one to whom all people will bow down and give worship. Therefore, all authority. But what is this authority based upon? Based on what? What comes before? What's happened just before he makes the statement? In Matthew 28, 1 to 15. All authority has been given to the Son of Man of Daniel 7 because he rose from the dead. Because Jesus conquered death and rose from the grave, all authority. Because he, was, because he stripped, humiliated, and defeated Satan at the cross and rose from the grave, all authority. Because he secured every gift of grace for all of the Father's children for all of eternity by rising from the dead, all authority. All authority. Have a look how... Um, the Apostle Paul puts it in Romans chapter 1, verse 3 and 4. He says, regarding his son as to his earthly life was a descendant of David, and who through the spirit of holiness was appointed the son of God in power by his resurrection from the dead, Jesus Christ our Lord. You see, the, the, the victorious resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead does not just declare that Jesus is the only Savior of the world. The resurrection from the dead proclaims that Jesus is the only Lord in all the world, in all the universe. All authority. Now let me ask you a question. Do you like the word authority? Do you like the word authority? 
If you're a little bit like me, and I suspect that you are, the only time that we like the word authority is when we've got it, right? When, when, when we have to be under someone else's authority, well, it's not so cool. Um, a, a Sydney business, businessman was interviewed, all this COVID shutdowns and lockdowns and whatever. The Sydney uh, businessman was interviewed recently, and he was asked what he thought about, about asking all his employees, he ran a business, what did he think about asking all his employees to, to absolutely get the jab, get vaccinated before they came back to work? And he answered in classic Australian style, quote, Aussies don't like being told what to do. There's something that bristles within us when we know or we perceive that someone has authority over us. Amen? Mm. Mm. Here's a great definition of authority that I came across. Authority is the right and the power to hold sway in a given relationship. It's a great definition. The right and power to hold sway in a given relationship. Now, here's the thing, though, isn't it? When you look at the authority structures in society, it's never absolute, is it? A father and mother have authority over their children, but they don't have authority over all children. An army officer may have authority over his platoon, but he doesn't have authority over the whole base. A teacher may have authority over students, but not authority over the principal. A manager may have authority over the, the, the secretaries, office secretaries, but not over the CEO. But the authority of Jesus has sway over every single person's life on this earth, past, present, and future. The authority of Jesus, because it's all authority, is over every man, every woman, every child. There are no exceptions. Every single person is subordinate to Jesus. Every human, every angel, every demon, the devil himself, the natural world, and absolutely everything that happens in the natural world. If you took a little bit of a journey through the book of Matthew, you will see that this authority is demonstrated. We could almost say this, that as we read the gospel of Matthew, we get a, we get a taste of this authority of Jesus. He demonstrates his authority over evil when he rebukes the demon in Matthew 4.10. He demonstrates his authority over all sickness and disease when all the people from all over the place brought all their sick and he healed all of them. Matthew 4.23. In Matthew 8, Jesus demonstrates his authority over nature when he calms the storm. In Matthew 9, he demonstrates his authority to forgive sins when he says to the man, your sins are forgiven as he's lowered down in front of him and then demonstrates that authority by healing him. He demonstrates his authority over death when he raises Jairus' daughter from the dead, Matthew 9. And here's an extraordinary one. Jesus says only he has the authority to lay down his life and take it up again. How about this? No one takes it from me, Jesus said in John 10. But I lay it down on my own accord. I have authority to lay it down. And I have authority to take up again. This command I received from my Father. 
But his greatest authority is seen in his suffering. His greatest authority is seen in his suffering. As he drinks the wrath of the Father, decimating the power of Satan, breaking the power of sin, taking the sting out of death, and then rising from the dead to show that he has all authority over life, over death, over heaven, over hell, over sin, over shame, over suffering, over sickness. And therefore, he has all authority to judge the living and the dead. I don't think you can get it much more succinct than Acts 17.31, where Luke writes, For he has set a day when he will judge, in the words of Paul, for he has set a day when he will judge the world with justice by the man he has appointed. He has given proof of this to everyone by raising him from the dead. So let me ask you again, who's the Jesus on the mountain? The one to whom all, all authority has been given. Which means, number two, therefore, go and make disciples. Here's how you could sort of, sort of summarize it. Actually, no. It's not on the screen. Here's how Jesus says it. He says, because of my resurrection from the dead, I have all authority. And because I have all authority, go and make disciples. Do you see it? Therefore, because I rose, I have all authority. And because I have all authority, I'm telling you to, to go. On what basis are we told to go and make disciples? On what basis? On the authority of Jesus. On what basis do we go and call all people wherever they are to come and bow down and worship the king? On what, on what basis? On his authority. On what basis do we go to people, all people, no matter where they are, who they are, and say, follow Jesus? On what basis? His authority. Now, the the implications of this are absolutely staggering. And I want to draw out a couple of them for you. Firstly, it means... That we do not ask for people's permission to declare the Lordship of Jesus. We don't ask permission if we can declare that he is Lord of Lords and King of Kings. Jesus says you go on my authority. You go and do what I've asked you to do. I am the risen King. I've given you the authority. It's my authority. Now go. And what that means is that we simply can not obey any command from any person, any organization, any government, any king, any president that tells us that we can't do that. We will not obey that command to stop preaching the gospel of the lordship of Jesus. 
And if you ever want to get your heart stirred up, you've got to read Charles Haddon Spurgeon, the great Baptist prince of preachers. And in the, one, particular, one particular sermon in, in Spurgeon's day, uh, France had an emperor, and, and the, emperor had, uh, the emperor of France made a decree that he would not allow evangelical preachers to come across from England and go into France to preach the gospel. And when the emperor of France made that decree, Charles Haddon Spurgeon got into the pulpit the next Sunday, and this is what he said. He said, the daughter of Zion wags her finger at you. Who are you, little king, to tell the king of kings where to send his men? We will flood your land with our preachers. End quote. Do you understand that in this regard, we are not under anybody's authority except Jesus? We're not under anybody's jurisdiction. And so if they persecute us, ridicule us, ostracize us, reject us, betray us, marginalize us, put us in prison, strip us of our human rights, even kill us, we will rejoice because we will be counted worthy of suffering for the, the name of the King of Kings. Amen? Hmm. Hmm. Have a look at this in Acts chapter, chapter 4. And you've got to go and read the, the whole chapter. But, but uh, Peter and James are in the temple. They, they're preaching the gospel. And they, get, they, they, they get arrested by the religious bourgeoisie. And then pick it up in verse 18. And it says, then this is the religious leaders. They called them in again and commanded them to, not to speak at all or teach in the name of Jesus. What do you think Peter and James said? Nah. But Peter and John replied, which is right in God's eyes, to listen to you or to listen, or, to listen to you or to him? You be the judges. As for us, we cannot help speaking about what we have seen or what we have heard. Brothers and sisters, could... Actually, before I give you that, they, the, the religious leaders didn't, didn't know what to do. They sort of got sort of tongue-tied. Peter and James leave that place. And, and let's just pick it up down in the same passage, verse 29 and 30. They go, they, they, they go back to their people who have been praying, and they get together and they pray. And this is how they pray. Now, Lord, this is in view of this, this threat. Now consider their threats and enable your servants to speak your word with great boldness. Stretch out your hand to heal and perform signs and wonders. Through the name of your holy servant, Jesus. Brothers and sisters, if we have been invested with all the authority from Jesus Christ to go and proclaim the gospel, could I ask that we as a body of believers united around the mission of Christ would pray for a fearless, humble boldness to proclaim the gospel of Jesus Christ, that he is Lord of lords and he is King of kings. You pray for that fearless, fearless boldness. As you may know, we, uh, a few weeks back we hosted ACL, Australian Christian Lobby. And as you know, ACL is a Christian organization that has dedicated itself to basically fight for religious freedom in Australia. 
But I want to say this to you, brothers and sisters. It doesn't matter if they take away our religious freedom. It doesn't matter if they tell us that we can't preach the gospel. It doesn't matter if they tell us to stop praying. It doesn't matter if they tell us that we can't put out Bibles. We will not obey. We will not obey the government to stop proclaiming the gospel of Jesus Christ. We will not. They can take the religious freedom. And if they persecute us for us and we die for it, then so be it. As for us, we cannot help speaking about what we have heard and seen. Now let me say this as well. This has enormous implications for the way that we call people to Jesus. When you talk to people, you, you, you sort of hear phrases like this one. Jesus is such a gentleman that he would never force anyone himself on anyone and demand, and he would never demand anything from anyone. Think about the way that we often sort of proclaim the gospel, or you hear people saying the way they've accepted the gospel. It goes something like this, well, 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 you need to accept Jesus into your heart, or you need to make Jesus Lord of your life. Now, there's something okay in that. But when we are proclaiming the gospel of Jesus Christ, we are proclaiming his lordship. It's not make him lord, it submit to him because he, he is lord. When we're proclaiming the lordship of Jesus, we're commanding all people in his authority to repent and believe. It's not make him lord, he is lord, so submit Pay homage, bow down, worship. And there is terrible judgment for those who will not bow the knee because the King of kings and the Lord of lords will send everybody to hell who does not bow the knee to him. Now let me just illustrate this again for you out of Acts chapter 2. and You're going to see this. So here's Peter in Acts. He stands up, he's been filled with the Spirit, he stands up at Pentecost preaches the sermon of sermons. You know the end result, 3,000 people are saved. But in the midst, here's what he says from verse 36. He says, he says, therefore let all Israel be assured of this. God has made this Jesus whom you crucified, both Lord and Messiah. That's what he preaches. When the people heard this, they were cut to the heart and they said to Peter and the other apostles, Brothers, what shall we do? Do you know what comes next? It's not make Jesus your Lord. It's not just accept him into your heart. It's never put that way in Scripture. Never. Here's how Peter responded. He said, repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. Jesus is Lord. Repent and believe. What does that actually mean? Now, repent does have the notion of turning away from sin. But repentance is about turning away from the sin of following another Lord. 
Repentance is turning away from following another Lord, another king, another idol, another God, mother nature, or even you yourself. Turn away from following a false God, a false Lord, and turn to the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords because He is Lord, He is King, He has risen from the dead. Now I want to just deal with this, this matter and it comes up a lot that we, and it's very, very common in Christian circles that we've got this notion that we have to build relationships with people before we proclaim the gospel. Now, I want to say to you this morning that there is a wisdom that is needed. And if there is an opportunity to build a relationship before you share the gospel, you do that. But I need to tell you, that's not the pattern that you see in the New Testament. When Peter was preaching to thousands of Jews and God-fearing Gentiles from all over the Roman colony, and they were all in Jerusalem, and, 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 and Peter got up to preach to all these thousands of Jews, he didn't have a relationship with them. Or he might have known the odd one or two. He'd never seen them before. He never met them before. When Paul the Apostle is going from place to place and preaching the gospel, he goes to Berea, then he goes to Thessalonica, then he goes to Philippi, and all in between. When he goes in, he goes into synagogue after synagogue. He didn't know any of them. He didn't know the Jews. He didn't build a relationship with them. All he had was a humble, prayerful, fearless boldness that Christ was Lord. And he proclaimed the gospel of Jesus Christ. And then you know what happened to him, don't you? They persecuted him, and he ran, and he ran, and he ran, and he, as he ran, he kept preaching, as he ran, he kept preaching. So much for relationship building. Therefore, all authority. Therefore, go and make disciples. Therefore, therefore what? What about us? Here's number one. There were two gentlemen, two young Moravian boys by the name of Johann Dober and David Nitschmann. Do those names sound familiar to anybody? They were two young Moravian brethren from Germany who felt called by God to go and preach the lordship of Jesus to the African slaves. And this is back in 1732. The African slaves were on the islands of St. Thomas and St. Croix in the Danish West Indies. When they were told they were not allowed to do such a thing, Dober and Nitschmann sold themselves to a slave owner and boarded a ship for the West Indies. And as the ship pulled away from the docks, it is recorded that this is what they shouted out to their loved ones whom they would never see again. May the lamb that was slain receive reward for his suffering. May the lamb that was slain receive reward for his suffering. 
Last week I told you that the BBC needs to be a war room of prayer. That's the prayer. That we would have a Moravian heart. That we would be willing to do whatever it takes. And we would be prepared to sacrifice whatever it takes. That the lamb who was slain might receive the reward for his suffering. Pray for the Moravian heart at BBC for yourself. Pray for the boldness, the fearless boldness of Peter and James before the religious bourgeoisie. Pray for the omission heart of the Apostle Paul. Listen, here it comes. Look at this in 1 Corinthians 9. Listen to the heart, though I am free and belong to no one. I have made myself a slave to everyone to win as many as possible. To the Jews, I became like a Jew to win the Jews. To those under the law, I became like one under the law, so as to win those under the law. To those not having the law, I became like one not having the law. Ooh. So as to win those not having the law. To the weak, I became weak to, to win the weak. I've become all things to all people, so that by all possible means I might save some. I do all this for the sake of the gospel that I might share in its blessings. Therefore, all authority, therefore, go and make disciples. Therefore, pray for that heart. And Jesus himself in Matthew 9, he said what he said to his disciples, the harvest is plentiful, but the workers are few. Ask the Lord of the harvest, therefore, to send out workers into the harvest field. Let me ask you some questions. Just This is for you to ponder, to think about, pray about. Therefore, all authority, therefore go and make disciples. Is he worthy? Is he worthy? Is the lamb worthy of the reward of his suffering? Is he worth proclaiming? Is he worth suffering for? Is he worth going to jail for? Is he worth being fined for? Is he worth dying for? Is that our conviction? Is Jesus Lord of your life? He is Lord. Is he Lord of your life? Is King Jesus ruling every square inch of your life? What areas of your life are you trying to live as if he isn't Lord? Are you proclaiming the Lordship of Jesus? And I want to say this to you. If you sit here and say you don't know how to, then come and speak to me. I will personally come and show you how to do it. I'll teach you. You just need to ask. So what are we going to do?
me and play you a song. I'm just going to ask you to think, just to sit, to listen, to worship, sing with it. It's a song that you know. We've sung it here before. And then I'm going to ask us to pray.